Tonight I'd like to speak about wisdom and compassion and the relationship of the two. The heart of the Buddhist teachings is freeing the mind from the habits which cause suffering. It's freeing the mind, the heart, from the habits of greed, of fear, of hatred, of anger, of ill will, of jealousy, of pride, of envy, all those very familiar states that cause suffering not only for ourselves but for other people. And all the practices that we do, the practice of generosity, the practice of loving-kindness, the practice of concentration, of mindfulness, all serve this end of freedom. So the question I'd like to consider tonight is how in the busyness of our lives, you know, in all the cares of our lives, how can we stay on track? How can we keep connected both to the possibility and also the actual experience of freedom? The unique aspect of the Buddhist teachings is that they both begin and end with wisdom. In these teachings, it's not a question of belief, and it's not a question of dogma, it's not a question of ritual. When I first went to India and met my first Dharma teacher, uh, Anagarika Manindra, he said something which just captured my attention from the very beginning. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. That was all. It was not, there was nothing to join. There was no ritual to observe. It was just that basic common sense advice. How else could we understand ourselves, understand our minds, except by sitting down, metaphorically, as well as literally, sitting down and observing what is the nature of our mind. Our whole spiritual journey unfolds through the development of this investigative power. It's this investigation of what is true. And the word dharma, which we use a lot, is a Sanskrit word, it's dhamma in Pali. It means the truth, it means the law, it means natural law, it means the way things are, the way things work, the Tao. And so what we do in our practice is this investigation of the Dharma. It's an investigation of the truth. And in one relatively unexplored aspect, and a very far-reaching aspect, we can investigate the Dharma, we can investigate the truth of how things are, we can develop wisdom in our lives, through a careful observation of impermanence. Now what's so interesting about this is that we all know things change. We can go outside on the street and stop anybody who's walking by and ask them, do things change? And everybody will say yes. So this is not an esoteric wisdom. The problem is we know it intellectually. But we haven't necessarily gotten it in the way we live, 
really understood it and experienced it and perceived it deeply in our lives. Because when we clearly and deeply see the truth of change, our heart and mind relax. And we let go of many kinds of suffering in our lives. And we see this clearly with our changing bodies. If we're attached to them staying a certain way, how do we feel? How are we when they go through their inevitable changes? When they change through accidents, when they change through disease, when they change through the simple process of getting older? It's surprising how different and difficult it is to see that these changes are not a mistake. It's not some big cosmic trick that's being played on us. It is the very nature of things. It is the Dharma. It is the Lord. This is what happens, and this is what happens to everyone. We've all had our own experiences of this, either very dramatically or not so dramatically, but noticing the changes. Some years ago, I was in New Mexico hiking at the end of a retreat in the, in the wilderness of New Mexico. And on the last day of the retreat, we were hiking up the river. And in coming back, I slipped on a rock. And I hyperextended my knee. And it was still okay, but I knew something was not quite right. And we came back, and I was giving the last Dharma talk of the course. And I had this thought in my mind, Joseph, better not to sit cross-legged. But I overrode the thought. I didn't pay attention to it. So I sat and gave the hour Dharma talk sitting cross-legged. I couldn't stand up. And I had to be carried back to my room. I couldn't put any weight at all on it. And I had a busy summer schedule. I was going to be teaching in Europe. and So my mind just started going down this whole track you know, of judging myself for being so careless that I slipped and why wasn't I paying more attention and then worry about the rest of my summer and my plans and what I was going to do. And then I saw I had a choice. I didn't have to stay on that track of the mind. And so I switched tracks, appreciating the fact that Things keep changing, and there is no control. It's unreliable in that way. And I came up with one of what I call the Vipassana or insight mantras. So this, is, this was one of them that came out of that experience, which was that anything can happen anytime. Really, anything can happen anytime. We don't know. But what was interesting was that sometimes people might hear that and get... Oh no, anything can happen anytime. I just kind of get fearful and worried and paranoid and start living, you know, in greater contraction. But really, it can be just the opposite. For me, the acknowledgement of that, it was like the acknowledgement, yes, things can change and do change in very unexpected ways. The acceptance of that really relaxed everything. Okay, let me just be in the moment. Let me be with what's happening. I didn't have to live so defensively. 
seeing and recognizing, seeing deeply, again, not intellectually, because we know conceptually that things change, but actually perceiving the change. The more clearly we see it and perceive it, it deconditions the very strong tendency in the mind to grasp, to cling to things staying a certain way, to things being a certain way. What's so amazing about the seductive power of the world, and it's a seduction which enthralls most of us, that when we look back at our past experience, we all know how ephemeral it is. You know, where's that wonderful experience you had a year ago? Or that awful experience that happened six months ago? Or one month ago? Or two weeks ago? Or the drive here? Where is it all? You know, when we look back at our experience, we can see so clearly its ephemeral, dreamlike nature. Yet when we look ahead, when we look to the future, somehow, and this is the great enchantment, we get dazzled by all the possibilities that are there waiting for us, as if the next event in our lives, the next situation, the next project, the next relationship, the next meal, even on meditation, the next breath, And we live our lives in anticipation of the next hit of experience as if the one that's coming will finally do it for us. What's so strange is that nothing up till now (laughs) has brought that sense of real completion or fulfillment. So why are we so (laughs) seduced into thinking that the next one will? So this is a very strange phenomenon. <laughs> Things are changing all the time, and the more we see that, the less we hold on. It's not that we pull back from experience. It's not that we're indifferent to experience. It's not that we become detached from experience. Rather, we're in the moment fully, but without without attachment. The difference between detachment and non-attachment. These two things are worlds apart. We see that things are changing so quickly and someone made the comment that as we get older it seems as if breakfast is happening every 15 minutes. (laughs) And I think those of us of a certain age (laughs) feel that. I was reading some poems by Ryokan, the 18th century Zen master, poet, hermit. You know, he's wonderful, wonderful being, you know, with, with this great enlightened wisdom. He would live as a hermit up in the mountains and then just often go wandering through the mountains and play with children and then he would go back to his hut. This is one of, one of his poems. And it was, it was particularly poignant, I think. Said late at night, listening to the winter rain, recalling my youth, was it only a dream? 
was I really young once? And I think we have that sense. Well, where is it all now? Wisdom arises, embodied wisdom arises, when we pay attention to impermanence in ways we already know, but often overlook. We see the changes in nature. The changes in nature are all around us. We see it in climate changes, in weather changes. We see it in the evolution of species, in the extinction of species. You know, whether we're looking on a more macro scale or on a very microscopic scale, everything is in change. We see the changes in society on a collective level, the rise and fall of civilizations. Do we really hold that understanding? It's so easy to think that the way we live now in our current civilization, our current culture, is going to last, even though none before has. So we see it on this very big level. We see it on the personal level. You know, people being born, people dying. Living in New England, it's really wonderful to walk through the woods. You know, there are just many, many miles of woods. And you come across these old stone walls and this, the stone foundations of old houses and the houses are all gone. There are just these foundations in the ground of stone. <laughs> and you can't help but think of all the life history that went on, you know, symbolized by those walls and those foundations, and yet now all that's left are these walls in the woods. So the impermanent nature of our lives and our culture and our society is so obvious when we look. We see the changing nature of our relationships, our work, and most intimately, the changing nature of our own minds and bodies. Careful observation of some very obvious truths can really jolt us out of a sense of complacency in which we often live our lives. There is the simple and very powerful reflection that the end of birth is death. That our lives are simply getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Even though we notice this more as we get older, it's equally true for all of us. But often our awareness of death seems to be limited to other people. It's other people who are always dying. And for ourselves, it's always projected into some far-off future. And it's strange that in our society, reflecting on death is kind of seen like a morbid, a morbid contemplation. You know, we dress up corpses and we put makeup on them, and sometimes they look better than they looked in years. <laughs> Because we don't like to face the, just the bare truth of what happens to the body. I saw a really 
a surprisingly shocking video. And surprising because I speak so often about just the bare fact of death and what happens to the body. But it was a video of the sky burials of Tibet. You know, because of the landscape, they don't bury the corpses. They actually dismember them and leave them on these cliffs or, you know, open rocky places where the birds, the vultures, will come and eat. And that's, that's the way of disposing of the body. And it surprised me how shocked I was to see it. You know, and it showed me just how deeply ingrained, you know, is both our attachment to the body and our not wanting to see just the truth of how things are. It was very interesting in that regard, practicing so many years in India, where things are not covered up at all. You know, it's like birth and death and life and everything is right out there on the streets. Uh, And it was very revealing, it was very illuminating. So I'd like to read you something. This is might take some of you back to the 70s. If you remember the books by Carlos Castaneda about the shaman tradition of Don Juan. So this is a beautiful teaching about the importance of this reflection. So this is Don Juan speaking to Carlos. Don Juan asked me to tell him what had been the most natural reaction I had in moments of stress, frustration, and disappointment before I became an apprentice. He said that his own reaction had been wrath. I told him that mine had been self-pity. Although you are not aware of it, you had to work your head off to make that feeling a natural one, he said. By now there is no way for you to recollect the immense effort that you needed to establish self-pity as a feature of your island. Self-pity bore witness to everything you did. It was just at your fingertips, ready to advise you. Death is considered by a warrior to be a more amenable advisor, which can also be brought to bear witness on everything one does, just like self-pity or wrath. As an advisor, self-pity is nothing in comparison to death. So I think we want to look at what our advisors are. You know, in moments of stress, in moments of frustration, in moments of difficulty, or in the ordinary course of our lives, what's the mind state that we take refuge in? What is the habit of our mind? And can we bring this reflection on death to the forefront? Because it's such a powerful reminder of what is important. So just as a possible experiment, the next time you have some quiet moments, reflect for a few moments or imagine yourself being on your deathbed and what that would be like. Because we never know quite how we'll die, but for the sake of the experiment, we'll give ourselves a little gift and imagine that we're in bed. (laughs) But even given that, imagine that we're dying, really dying, 
And then try to see what is it that the mind would be most holding on to. What would it be most attached to? And to ask the question, in those dying moments, what would be the most value to us? What would be of the most value? Would it be things we've done, possessions that we've acquired, projects we've completed? Or would it be a certain quality of the heart? Quality of openness, acceptance, equanimity, non-clinging. Quality of peace. The secret to this question is to ask it now. Because if we wait until the time of dying, we may not have the chance to consider our life choices. So as we reflect on this great truth of impermanence, the truth of death, it's interesting to notice our responses. Do we get frightened by it? For many people, there's a fear of death. Does it inspire us? Do we want to keep it out? Do we let it in? There's an amazing story of Henry David Thoreau, who, as you all know, was a wonderfully wise being. But he was wise in ways that I really hadn't understood simply from reading the great books, his great books. He died early. He died at the age of 44, sometime in his 40s, of TB. But he had such an understanding of nature, and in that respect, an understanding of the Dharma. This is what he said. This is written by a friend who was visiting him as he was dying. He said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. I never before saw such a manifestation of the power of spirit over matter. Very often I heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. That is a remarkable understanding that the nature of awareness, the nature of knowing, is like an empty mirror. It simply knows what is arising before it, so to speak. And it can know perfect health and know perfect disease with the same clarity, with the same openness, with the same emptiness. So this statement of Thoreau is really very, very remarkable. Then he said, some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he replied, I did not know we had ever quarreled, Aunt. (laughs) So it is possible, it is possible through wise reflection on some very obvious truths. These are not esoteric truths. This is just the truth of nature, the truth of our lives, that the end of birth is death. It can bring us to a place of profound wisdom, of profound letting go. 
we also develop insight through paying attention to impermanence on more momentary levels. And this happens very much as the mindfulness gets stronger, the concentration gets stronger in meditation practice. And what we see is that it's not hard to be mindful. That's not the hard part. It's hard to remember to be mindful. We get distracted often, but through practice it's simply coming back to knowing what's happening. Breathe in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. It really is that simple. So when leaving the hall tonight, when leaving the church, if you can remember between now and then, again, another, another experiential practice you could do. As you leave the hall, pay attention to the flow of changes that are taking place in your experience. But as you're walking out, you'll be experiencing the changing sensations of the body moving, of the sounds coming and going, of the changing forms and colors, of the thoughts appearing and disappearing. Just in an ordinary activity, we stand up and we walk out the door. If we're mindful, if we're paying attention, we can see that all of this experience is like the current of a river. It's like water over a waterfall. When we pay attention in this way, we actually have the opportunity in ordinary daily activity to practice the non-grasping mind. Ajahn Chah, who was one of the great Thai forest masters of the last century, he said, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So wisdom comes through this direct seeing and the refinement of our perception of change. Out of this ground of wisdom grows a very rare flower. What grows out of the ground of wisdom is the flower of what in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. And that is the aspiration that we might have or might cultivate to awaken from ignorance for the welfare, for the benefit of all beings. It's the realization that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. But we can really put this motivation, may my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all. And out of this aspiration of bodhicitta, this motivation to practice, to live for the benefit of all beings, comes a wealth and abundance of compassionate activity. So what is compassion? It is that very strong feeling and motivation that wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. Years ago, again, maybe it was back in the 70s, Ram Dass and Paul Gorman wrote a book called How Can I Help? 
There was many, many stories of compassionate action in the world, but the title really captures what this feeling of compassion is about. It's we are close to a situation of suffering, and the response is, how can I help? So the feeling arises when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering, whether it's our own or others. This is a very profound and difficult practice, because we may want to be compassionate, and even often are compassionate, but it's not always a very easy thing to do. Just as we don't like necessarily to be with our own pain, we don't often particularly want to be with the pain of others. There are very strong tendencies in the mind in the face of suffering that keep us withdrawn or defended or apathetic or indifferent. It's hard. It's hard to open in a full way. You know, and we see that in meditation because for many people, for a long time when we sit, there may be discomfort. There may be pain in the body, pain in the mind. How is the mind with that? Probably when you sit and the pain in the knee comes, your first response is probably not Oh yes, come close. And probably the first response is, oh no, not this again. There's this strong tendency to pull back or to close off. And there's one story which I've told many times, but it's such a favorite of mine. I look for every opportunity to tell it again. It was a story told to me by a friend of mine about his grandfather and his father driving along on December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. Okay, so it's his grandfather and his father. They're driving along. The announcer comes on, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The first thing that his grandfather says to his father is, don't tell your mother. World War II would be big to keep out. (laughs) But don't upset your mother. (laughs) I like the story because both it's amusing, but it also reflects, maybe in an exaggerated way, but the same tendencies within ourselves. You know, in the face of something unpleasant, in the face of suffering, our own or others, very often, you know, is there some way to be protected from it? Behind all of these movements of pulling away from suffering, and so capping the wellspring of compassion, because compassion comes when we are willing to come close to suffering, So behind all these movements of pulling away are deeply conditioned fears. Both in meditation practice and in our lives, 
we come to the edges, we come to the boundaries of what is comfortable for us, what is acceptable, what is familiar, what we're willing to be with. And then we get to the edge, we get to the boundary of that, and it's precisely at that place that fears begin to arise for us. So in order to develop more compassion, more wisdom in our lives, each one of us really needs to play at the edge, explore the boundaries. When we're moving out of our comfort zone, in whatever domain, in whatever situation, we're coming out of our comfort zone, right there, instead of pulling back, instead of pulling away, can we take a breath, open, Maybe practice relaxing the heart, letting it in, whatever the difficulty is, letting ourselves feel it. For some people, the edge or the boundary might be physical pain. You know, we just get to a place in practice and we pull back from it. We don't want to feel it. What's interesting, and this we see a lot in meditation, that often it's not the discomfort in the moment that we're pulling back from, but it's the anticipated discomfort of what's going to come. We have an unpleasant sensation and then we start thinking, how will I endure this for an hour? So instead of just being with the momentary sensation, we are taking on an hour's worth of sensation in the moment. So, of course, the mind gets afraid and pulls back and resists and makes it worse. So it might be fear of physical discomfort or pain. It might be fear, our edge, our boundary, might be fear of certain emotional states, painful emotional states, loneliness or unworthiness. Or shame, or embarrassment, or boredom, just feelings that are painful to feel. We don't want to feel them because they're unpleasant. And so we construct a lie that defends us from feeling them. We close off to them. I was teaching a retreat as part of a contemplative law program. So it was a retreat for lawyers and law students and judges. And and there was one second-year law student. This was on the East Coast. And in a group discussion was saying, you know, in that adversarial situation where there's so much tension and so much uh, difficulty, he said that he would often get angry in order not to feel fear because he felt that fear would be weakening. And it was just such an interesting comment and so resonant with so much of our experience where we get angry or some other emotion in order not to feel the fear or in order not to feel something else. And we talked about the possibility of actually opening to the fear itself. It's okay to feel the fear. And not only is it not weakening, it's strengthening in that place of acceptance. This moving away from certain emotions had another 
very striking experience of it. About uh, 14 years ago, um, I had been living at IMS right in the building for many years, for about 13 years. And then when I turned 40, I said, I need to get out of here. <laughs> I need some private space. You know, the community living after all that time, uh, I had outgrown it for then. So through some miracle, and this was, this was very much in line with tonight's theme, it was a miracle of generosity. Somebody came forward and offered to build a house for Sharon Salzberg, my, my colleague and myself, and they built this duplex. Uh, and it was just this amazing gift. And it was a long process. I was very involved in it, very consumed by it. And then finally got built, and I moved in. And I started living there with doing a, a month-long self-retreat. And I was just alone in the house, sitting for a month. I started sitting, and then I got filled with feelings of discomfort. I shouldn't be living in such a nice house. Dharma teachers shouldn't live like this. This is too nice. I'm going to move out. I'm going to give it to the staff. I'll live in a hut in the woods. <laughs> and kind of going on and on and on. And so this went on for days, this kind of just churning about this. So at a certain point, I just, what is going on here? You know, why am I so hooked? So I looked, just looked more carefully at what was going on, and I realized that I was embarrassed. I was just embarrassed. That was the feeling. But the embarrassment was so uncomfortable you know, that I was going through all these machinations not to feel the embarrassment. When I saw that, though, when I saw it clearly, I realized I'd much rather feel embarrassed than move out of the house. (laughs) 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 Embarrassment, embarrassment, embarrassment. It came when I saw it and could accept it. It came and went, and it really wasn't a problem. So it was just just kind of a funny, although it wasn't so funny at the time, (laughs) example of how by resisting feeling certain emotions that are unpleasant, we actually lock them in and we get ourselves tied up tighter and tighter. Often we're afraid of fear itself. We have fear of fear. You know, so when we do come to the edge, come to the boundary of something that you know, we're a little uncomfortable with, and fear arises, so then the mind can contract in response to the fear. We don't like to feel it. Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, the wonderful artist, she had some very good lines about this, and it was a little surprising to read this. She said, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. Such just a, such a refreshing relationship to fear. It's not that fear won't arise as we play the edge. That's exactly when fear will arise. But it doesn't need to stop us from doing things, from exploring, from investigating. Because we can come to an acceptance of the fear. It's okay. It's okay to feel it. 
The great lesson in meditation practice, and this is a wisdom that really can transform our lives. It's very simple, and yet it's application is so far-reaching. The wisdom that comes from wise attention in life, and particularly in meditation, is that it is not what's happening that's important. It's in how we're relating to what's happening. It's the relationship to experience that is all important. Are we open or are we closed? Is the mind spacious? Is it accepting? Is it contracted? The experience will continually change, and it's pleasant sometimes, it's unpleasant sometimes. That really is not what's important, even though we keep going after the pleasant. What's really important, and where the freedom of mind and the freedom of our lives lie, is in the relationship. As we practice and as we learn to open to and come closer to the suffering that exists in our own mind and body and in the lives of other people, it really opens the wellspring of compassion within us. The more we can be with our own difficulty, our own pain, the easier it is to be with the pain and difficulties of others. You know, and this happens on different levels. The first level, it is the feeling of empathy. That is, we feel the pain and the suffering of other people. And it happens when we can slow down enough, even for a few moments. We slow down and even stop for a few moments and really feel what it is that's going on. Now, when we meet somebody and we say, how are you? Do we mean it? You know, are we willing to take that moment really to let something in? Well, compassion and bodhicitta take this feeling of empathy, this feeling of willing to feel the pain or the difficulty or the distress of another. Compassion and bodhicitta take this feeling of empathy a step further. Because it's not simply feeling the distress of others, it's also being motivated to act. And Thich Nhat Hanh expressed this so beautifully and concisely when he said, compassion is a verb. Compassion is that feeling that motivates us to do something. So as we develop this motivation more and more in our lives, it really starts to manifest as an active engagement with the suffering in the world. It's it's responding to the various needs of beings in whatever way is appropriate, in whatever way is possible. Now sometimes it's in very small and unregarded ways. It might be simply being kinder or more generous or more patient with the people around us. That's a compassionate act. It might be giving a gift to someone 
who is really difficult for us, instead of closing them out. The Dalai Lama has a wonderful teaching on this, and it's something that would be a wonderful practice for us. He said, I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. It is the practice of compassion. You know, what's so remarkable about somebody like His Holiness is that when you meet him, you do feel like you're an old friend. Because he is so open-hearted and so present and so fully giving of his attention in that moment. Well, can we practice that? How did he get to be that way? Doesn't not just some miracle. He got that way through practice. Sometimes acts of compassion embody tremendous determination. Recently I read a book about Dr. Paul Farmer. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a doctor who spent many, many years in Haiti, in the back country of Haiti, first with AIDS work and then TB. And the model for how he worked was so successful in Haiti that it then was expanded to many places in the world. And there's this wonderful book by Tracy Kidder called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And it's about, it's about Paul Farmer. And there was one story in there that, that really captured my mind. He was describing a situation where he would walk for many miles, for seven miles, for seven hours, walk for seven hours to treat two families uh, that were way, way out in the mountains of Haiti. And people were criticizing him you know, for spending so much time just for two families when he could be doing so much more. So this is what his response was. If you say that seven hours walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. You know, it's so powerful. The idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong in the world. So sometimes this compassion manifests There's just this tremendous determination and sometimes it manifests in acts of tremendous courage. You know, when we think of, and of course there are different examples, but somebody who embodies this for me is Martin Luther King Jr. You know, and kind of seeing the, the film clips of the marches in Chicago and Birmingham and Memphis, where he's marching surrounded by violence and surrounded by hatred and holding that space of a loving heart. That's, that's remarkable. Or we think of the Buddha who practiced over countless lifetimes. Not only to alleviate the suffering in particular situations, but to really penetrate or see what the root causes of suffering were. And explore the nature of the forces of greed and hatred and delusion in our minds and the possibility of freeing ourselves. 
as we consider the possibility of compassionate action, I think it's important to realize that there is no particular prescription for what we should do. It's not that we should necessarily become Paul Farmer or Martin Luther King. There's no hierarchy of compassion and action because the field of compassion is limitless. It's the field of suffering beings. So in this, we each find our own way. We each find what's possible for us, where our interest lies. But if we plant the seed of bodhicitta, the motivation and intention that our practice and our lives be for the benefit of all, or even have the aspiration to have this motivation. Because this is big. I mean, this is huge. To really be committed to live one's life for the benefit of all beings, this is a big thing. So we need to be very humble with this. You know, to start small. We may be just planting the seed. I would like to have the aspiration for that. So we just plant a seed and we nurture the seed and we water the seed and slowly the wisdom and compassion grow within us. This is also from Thoreau. Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. Yes, so we start we start very small. We just plant the seed of bodhicitta. We plant the seed of compassion. And even when we're not acting from that place of love and kindness and wisdom, still if that seed is within us, it becomes the reference point that illuminates other possibilities, other choices. I'd like to close with one short Tibetan teachings, which I think captures a lot of what we might do with our lives. It's called The Seven-Point Mind Training by Atisha. Consider all phenomena to be dreams. Be grateful to everyone. Don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Don't brood over the faults of others. Explore the nature of unborn awareness. At all times, simply rely on a joyful mind. Don't expect a standing ovation. Thank you.